So let me ask you a question. What comes to mind when you hear the phrase, in God we trust? Okay. Okay. First service giggled a little bit. They were a little nervous about it. I wonder how many of you thought of license plates, right? Indiana is one of 20 license plates or 20 states where we have in God we trust on our license plates. But I bet you didn't think about license plates, did you? I bet you thought about something like this. Does that look familiar? I was walking through this message out loud at home earlier this week and my daughter yelled from a room away, money, it's on our money, right? In God we trust, it's on our money. So where did it come from? Why is it there? Well, the story dates back to the, the Civil War in 1861. A pastor named M.R. Watkinson wrote a letter to the secretary of the U.S. Treasury imploring him, them, to somehow acknowledge the Almighty on our currency. And surprisingly, the Treasury agreed, and a year later, they started printing the phrase, in God we trust, on our currency, on coins. Now, if you fast forward about 90 years into the future, 1956... So the, the World War II is over, but the Cold War has begun, and the United States and the Soviet Union, two world superpowers, are engaged in the Cold War, and they have two very different ideologies. It was democracy versus communism. And as part of their communism, the Soviet Union adopted atheism, and they began teaching a generation of kids that God does not exist. Now, the United States took the exact opposite approach. Under the leadership of Pres uh, President Eisenhower, we adopted the, the motto, in God we trust, as our national motto. We said, no, we want to be, be different. And a year later, Congress passed a bill that the phrase, in God we trust, would appear on all of our currency, and it's been there ever since. And so for those of us that believe in God, for those of us that follow Jesus, we can find comfort and we can find pride in knowing that, yes, like we were a Christian nation. This is how we're supposed to live. But let me ask you a question. In light of the world, in light of the status of our country, would you say that's true? Do we really trust in God? Do we trust in the God whose name we put on our money or do we trust in the money that has our God's name on it. Because I don't know if you notice, we live in a world that says, well, you should get and acquire all the money that you can because that is gonna give you ultimate security. And more money means that you can have more stuff and more stuff. Well, that just means you're gonna be happy all the time and life is gonna be easy, right? And so in light of the way that we live, I think we should start a petition and say, you know what, in God we trust. It did us good for a while, but let's come up with a new motto. How about in more we trust? Because that's the way the world tells us to live. We're tempted to want to live that way. In more, we trust. But there's a problem. In more, we trust doesn't work. Because the more that we pursue more, it tempts us into living outside of our means. And our pursuit for more, well, it has led to more debt personally and nationally than ever before. More stress, more anxiety, more discontentment in our lives, no matter how much money we have, we save, or we acquire. And so I want to ask you a question, but I'm going to ask it to you individually. Which do you trust more, God or money? Which has a firmer grip on your heart? Which brings you more comfort? Which gives you more security and peace? And here's one, which do you crave more? Today, we're going to begin a brand new series called Less is More. And over the next four weeks, we're going to look at, see what God has to say in his word about money, finances, possessions, and living generously. And I've got a spoiler alert for you. The answer isn't necessarily having more money, but the answer isn't necessarily to have less money either. 
The goal is to learn how does God view these things so we know how to live according to his word. And ultimately, the goal is that we become less about ourselves. We get, become less focused on us and more focused on him and his kingdom. Now, just so we're all aware, I know that a pastor talking about a subject like money in a church setting is cringy for everyone, okay? I'm very aware of the tension in the room. And if you're new or you're visiting, you're thinking, I knew, I knew we should have waited another week. I knew we should have gone to that other church. I just knew this is what they were going to talk about today. And all I know to say is, you're welcome. You are so welcome. We are so glad that you're here. Give us a chance, okay? Don't give up on us after today. Keep coming back. Give us a chance. Um, I want to invite you to lean into this conversation. And if you've been around Genesis for a while, I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you. Don't pretend like you're new. Like, oh, I don't have to listen to this. No, no, no. We talk about this every week. We take a moment and talk about how our collective generosity is making an impact for God locally and all around the world. So lean into this conversation. And here's why we talk about it. This is why this is so important. In the Old Testament and the New Testament combined, Scripture speaks on the topic of money and possessions over 2,000 different times. I read one source that says that is five times more than scripture speaks about prayer. So just think about that. And apparently Jesus got the memo on this because he spoke on the topic of money and possessions more than heaven and hell combined. Okay, so Jesus was really serious about this. And so if this was an important topic for Jesus, it should be an important topic for us too. And when you think about it, we deal with, we manage, we talk about money everywhere else in our lives. So why wouldn't we talk about it here? And we have the advantage here of seeing what God has to say on this subject. But here's the reason why it's cringy for us. Here's the reason why it makes us all feel awkward. It's because we know that money has the potential to be an idol that we put in place of God. That means money can be really dangerous. In fact, I would, I'm just wondering or guessing that most of us, if not all of us, are struggling with having God or money in front of God. So it's really important that we know how to approach this wisely. Here's just two passages that Jesus has where he speaks about money. Matthew chapter six, Jesus says this, don't store up treasures here on earth. Store your treasures in heaven because where your tre treasure is, the desires of your heart will be there also. So Jesus says, pay attention because this is definitely a heart issue. And then in Luke 12, he says this, beware Guard your hearts against any kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. So Jesus says, this is a heart issue. And let me just go ahead and tell you what the problem is. Jesus says, the problem is greed. Now, do any of you enjoy being around a greedy person? Greedy people are not fun to be around because no matter how much they have, it's never enough. They always want more. And have you noticed that the thought of them sharing what they have or enjoying what they have themselves or with anyone, it, it doesn't compute for them. It's completely disgusting for them. Have you noticed that the, the word miser and miserable come from the same root word? There's something about greed that is just repulsive to us. Now, here's a, here's a more direct question. How many of you want to be known as a greedy person? No one wants to be known as a greedy person. Greed is never spoken of positively. It's because there's nothing really redeemable about it. So since Jesus warns about the dangers of greed and he speaks about how we should view our money and our possessions, I want to ask a few important questions as we jump in. What's the best way that you and I can guard our hearts against the stronghold of greed? How can we learn to view money and possessions the way God does so that greed does not rule in our hearts? 
If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles under the seats all around the room. And if you need a Bible, I want to invite you to take that and to keep it as our gift to you. Um, And let me set the scene for what's taking place in John chapter 12. In John 12, Jesus is one week away from dying. He is at the very end of his ministry. In fact, one week after this story is written, his body is going to be dead in the tomb. That's how close he is to the end. And in John chapter 11, the previous chapter, Jesus has raised a man named Lazarus, a good friend of his, from the dead. And so you can imagine the excitement in the room when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And now Jesus is traveling to the town of Bethany where Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, all live. This family was especially close and important to Jesus. And we're going to pick up the story in John chapter 1. I'm sorry, 12 verse 1. It says this, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus's honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table. So John says there was a dinner in Jesus's honor. Do you want to know why? Because when someone raises your brother or your friend from the dead, you should say thank you. And this is the way that they're going to say thank you. Jesus, we want to make you some really good food. We want to throw a party in your honor. Now, in Matthew's account of this story, we learn that his 12 disciples were also with him. So it's a full house of people. There's a celebration that's taking place. And John tells us that they were reclining around the table. Now, thanks to Leonardo da Vinci, we picture this looking something like this. This is the Last Supper. This is going to take place in a few days. But they're all sitting at a table, at a high table, and they're all around chairs. And they're all on one side of the table so people online can watch the dinner take place, right? That's not how this took place, right? Nobody's ever eaten a meal quite like this. So this isn't what, what it's supposed to look like. It's supposed to look like this. They're all sitting at a low table. They're leaning on their elbow. Their feet are away from them. They're leaning on their elbow so their heads are close and they can eat and they can talk together and they're keeping their feet away. And before we move on, let's just stop and pray and thank God that somebody came along and invented chairs and taller tables because that looks like a horrible way to enjoy a meal, right? They're they're celebrating, they're partying. Look at verse three. Mary took out a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus's feet and she wiped it with her hair. Guys, if you're looking for a good gift idea this holiday season, I want to suggest nard. It doesn't sound really sexy, but apparently it's really, really nice. It's an herb that was grown in the Himalayan mountains, and it took a lot. It was very expensive to have it harvested and transported, and so it was exceptionally valuable. But John doesn't just tell us that Mary poured nard on Jesus's feet. He tells us how much she poured. This translation says a pint. Some translations say a pound. You've seen a pint glass before. Imagine how much a pound weighs. I got curious this week and I Googled and I was correct. A burrito from Chipotle weighs about a pound, okay? So imagine taking all of that, that weight and dumping that in perfume on someone's feet and look at their response. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Everyone could smell what just happened. Now, at first glance, this might seem like a really odd story to be included, not just in one, but three of the four gospel accounts. And so we should ask, why? What's going on in this story that the gospel writers want us to know? Why did the Holy Spirit inspire them to to all write this down? And here's why I think it's important. Mary is modeling something that we need to take note of because not only was nard extremely rare, it was also incredibly valuable. Look at verse four. One of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray Jesus, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. 
worth a year's wages. That's some expensive perfume. So let's just put this in a context we can appreciate and understand. I did some research this week. The average income in Hamilton County for a single person is $47,000. So picture $47,000 worth of perfume being dumped out on Jesus's feet. This is why Judas is like, what are we doing here right now? Now, since we're gearing up for an elect, we had an election this last week and we've got a big election year coming up. I wanted to help us get warmed up. We're going to cast a vote. Who is right in this situation? Is it Judas or is it Mary? Mary wants to thank Jesus for raising her brother from the dead. That seems really important. But Judas is like, wait a minute, time out. That's a lot of money. We could use this money to help the poor people. Okay, but before you cast your vote, I want to finish the rest of the story because there's some important details here. Verse six, he, Judas did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. It's always important to fact check your sources, right? Like we get a really important detail here. Judas seems right, but all of a sudden we learn, wait a minute, his heart's not right. And more importantly, I want you to listen to Jesus's response. I have thought about these words all week long. Verse seven, leave her alone. Now I'm gonna guess Jesus didn't say that very passively. Leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Now that seems like a really interesting response, Jesus. Are you saying that we shouldn't think about giving money to the poor first? That's not the point that Jesus is making. I think the fact that Jesus jumps to Mary's defense and says, Judas, back off now it tells us that there's something more going on. Jesus is using this real life scenario to point out the difference between Judas's heart that had been consumed by greed and Mary's heart that was focused on giving and gratitude. So here's a really important question. Are you and I more like Judas or more like Mary? Is my life being consumed by greed or am I growing in this area of gratitude? Judas was struggling with greed, and greed tells us more is never enough. In fact, greed says it's okay to steal other things because you don't want other people to have them. And look at how Judas responds. What does he do? He uses his role as the money keeper to file a public complaint. He makes a scene, and he takes the approach that we all love. He takes the holier-than-thou approach. Oh, surely, Mary, you should know better than this, right? Judas had become consumed by greed, and his greed was so extreme that he couldn't stomach a display like this, even if it was meant for Jesus. That tells us something about his, his heart. But I'm going to guess that Judas wasn't the only person in that house that was stunned by Mary's response of generosity. If you think about the amount and the rarity and the value of that perfume, there's no doubt that Mary was literally giving the very best gift she could give to Jesus in this instance. But here's what I want you to see. The gift isn't the perfume. The gift isn't even the dollar amount. The gift was Mary's act of worship out of gratitude that was directed to Jesus. See, Mary understood that her possessions, they're not an idol that you're supposed to store up for later. Mary understood that her resources were a tangible way of expressing her worship to Jesus in this moment right now. So, how can we become more like Mary? How can we, 
dethrone the idol of greed? How can we break the grip of greed in our hearts and learn to grow in gratitude towards God? Now, the answer is simple, but that doesn't mean that it's easy. And Mary shows us where to begin. The first step in breaking greed's hold is to learn to give with the heart of gratitude towards God. Give with the heart of gratitude towards God. And I, I want to look at this story in John 12, and I want you to think about it from her perspective. For the last three and a half years, think of all that she has seen Jesus do. She has seen Jesus cast demons out of people. She has watched Jesus miraculously heal people that were impossibly sick. She has watched Jesus feed crowds of thousands of people miraculously. And now they're at dinner and they're all there together. And her brother, who Jesus brought back from the dead, is eating with them. And I think she got an idea. You know what? I've got that expensive jar of perfume. What, what am I waiting for? Why wouldn't I use it? Who could be more worthy of an expression like this other than Jesus? I want you to look at what Jesus says about Mary's response in, in Matthew's account. Matthew 26, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and will be discussed. Jesus could have said, geez, Mary, like tone it down a little bit. A Starbucks gift card would have been okay. All right, I would have got the message. Or just a little dab of the perfume would have been enough. But Jesus doesn't lay off. He's, he's just like Mary. He doesn't hold back either. He praised her act of generosity and says, for generations to come, when people talk about what happened here, they're gonna talk about what Mary did in the heart of gratitude with which she gave. So Mary's story, it's inspiring to us, but let's be honest, it's also pretty overwhelming because it is an extravagant display of giving. But don't let the monetary value distract you from the point. Here's the point of the story. Mary willingly sacrificed something of value as an act of worship to Jesus. That's the point. She was willing to sacrifice something as an act of worship to Jesus. And the best way for us to break the cycle of greed, the best way for us to follow Mary's example is to learn to give with gratitude, to give to God and to give to others, to practice generosity. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to look at steps that we can all take. And so I want you just for the next little bit, I want you to think about where you are on your, your journey of generosity, how you give to God and how you give to others. And where is God going to call you to go? How can you take a next step? Now, we've got an illustration that we've used around here before. We call it the generosity ladder. And there's four simple steps. And over the next few weeks, we're going to look at each step, each rung and say, okay, well, where am I? There's not a right or a wrong place to be, but where am I and how do I, how do I take a next step? And by the way, just because you step up doesn't mean you're holier. That's not how this works. It's just growing in this area of generosity. And so today I want to take a look at the first step because the first step of becoming a first time giving, giver, giving for the very first time, it's a big step. It's an important step. I think it maybe it's the scariest step because it's a huge step of faith. Because when we learn to live in faith, we start to understand that everything that we have isn't ours. It's given to us by God, it all belongs to him and we trust him with what we give and we trust him for the outcomes to do more than we could ever imagine. And time and time again, scripture teaches us that learning to give generously and with gratitude, it unlocks our heart in some very unexpected ways and some very unique ways. Now, my wife, Casey and I, we've learned this principle over the last 22 years in our marriage. 
we lived at home until the day that we were married, okay? And then when we moved in together after getting married, no one had ever sat us down and said, this is how you make a budget. This is how you manage your money. And so we came in with two car payments, two groups of student loans and bills. And now we're first time renters. And we're like, I guess this is, we're just going to go through life. Let's figure this thing out, okay? And so we're trying to figure it out. And we had started dabbling with credit cards because we thought this is a good way to get ahead. Spoiler alert, credit cards don't help you get ahead, okay? They actually put you more behind. And so we're dabbling with all this. But we were also part of an amazing church in Louisville, Kentucky that taught the importance, on a regular basis, they taught the importance of giving to God first. And so I'll never forget when we put this practice into play. We didn't have a lot of money. We had lots of bills. And we gave first. And we tried to be as grateful as we knew how. And we have never looked back. The math does not add up, but God has never let us down. He has never forgotten about us. He has provided for our families in ways that honestly don't make sense. And it's not like if we give God one dollar, he's going to give us two. Nope, that's not how it works. He's got a whole different economy and he does things that will just blow your minds. And honestly, I'm excited over the next few weeks to share some stories from our life of how we've learned to grow in this principle and how God has said, okay, I see you. I'll help you along. So I hope you'll lean. In fact, if you've got a giving story, we would love to hear it. I want to invite you to email it to us at info at genesischurch.me. Like a time that you felt like you were called to give and just how God used it to bless you or someone else along the way. Two weeks ago, we wrapped up our series in the book of Acts. We have spent several weeks this year in the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, we see how the Holy Spirit came on the early church in power. And the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit empowered those first followers to advance the message of the gospel and the movement of the church. And it's wonderful, but the Holy Spirit also did a lot of other things. He, he normalized radical giving in the early church. Look at uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 44 through 46. All the believers were together in one place and they shared everything they had. They sold their possessions and their property and they shared their money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper and they shared their meals with great joy and generosity. And so in the book of Acts, we see generosity become normal in the church. Radical generosity became normal in the church. In Genesis, I just want to be real clear about this. I would love, we would love to become a church that normalizes this kind of generosity. Not so that we have a bigger budget, so that we can make the name of Jesus known everywhere that we go, here and around the world. And it's going to take all of us working on it together to make that, make that a priority. So if you're not currently giving, or it's been a long time since you've given to a church like Genesis, I want to invite you to pray and say, okay, God, where do I start? What do you want me to do? And I, I don't want you to just pray about it. I want you to like set a date on the calendar. Maybe it's today. Maybe it's next week. Maybe it's at the end of this series. Not too far off. And don't do it because I told you to. In fact, I would challenge you not to even do it because scripture tells you to. I would challenge you to do it out of gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. And maybe a good place to start is what if you gave up all your Starbucks trips this week or anytime you ate out and you just took that money and you said, you know what? I'm going to be generous. I'm going to give that as a place to start. It's a, it's a small sacrifice, but start there. You can give to churches like Genesis in lots of different ways. You can go to our website. There's a little give button. You click on that. You can give online. You can do that once or recurring. And it's, it's secure. 
About 80% of the people in our church give that way. Um, that's how my family has given for years. You can use the boxes in the back of the room and you can drop cash and checks in there. Or, or, but maybe, let's just be honest. Maybe you're like, hey, you're a pastor and I don't trust you. And I don't know that I want to give to your church. That's fine. I get that. There's a lot of churches that have messed this up. So here's my challenge for you. I want you to consider giving to our Christmas offering. Because for the last several years, we've, we've collected funds for the Christmas offering, and we give those away to our ministry partners locally and around the world. And so if you give to that, you can be sure it's going out the doors. But start, start somewhere. Don't make excuses. Do it because you love God and he has been good to you. And we love celebrating first-time givers. We just got this offering envelope in a week or so ago from Maggie. She's nine. She's in third grade. She's ahead of some of us. She found a quarter. She didn't say anything to her mom. She dropped it in and she's like, mom, hand me one of those envelopes. And she starts writing it down. And her mom's like, what are you doing? She's like, I'm giving it all to God, right? And you're like, yeah, it's just a quarter. Way to go, Maggie. It's all Maggie had. There's a story where Jesus sees a, a widow drop in just a little bit of money and he tells his disciples, she's given the most. She gave out of everything that she had. It is not about the amount. Don't be fooled into thinking that it's about the amount. Because when you give, God doesn't need anything from you. He owns it all. He just wants something better for you. And when we give, we learn to make our lives less about him and more about Jesus. And that's God's ultimate goal for us in the first place. And so I know that giving can be scary or intimidating. You might be thinking, I've got debt. I can't get out. I think God wants to help you get out of your debt and start by giving to him first and being generous in that way. Because when you give, it has the potential. Not, it doesn't have the potential. It will change your heart. God will do something in you that you didn't anticipate, but it also has the potential to change the lives of people around you in ways you would never imagine. So pray about it, put it into practice, and I promise you, you will not regret it. I've heard that ancient kings were known for their appearance, their clothing, and oddly enough, their smell. And I want you to think of this story in John chapter 12. Okay, all this perfume's poured out on Jesus's feet. Scholars believe the very next day, Jesus went into Jerusalem for the last time. He rode in on a donkey. And this is the story where all the people rush forward and they say, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We're ready to make you our king, Jesus. Thousands of people. And I wonder, I can't help but wonder, did they catch a whiff of Jesus? Could they smell Mary's offering of worship as he passed by. Mary's gift of worship potentially blessed all those people that came to greet Jesus on that day. But here's the thing about that story that we have to remember. No one knew he was getting ready to die in a few days. No one. Jesus knew. He's the only one. In fact, in John 12, listen to what Jesus says to Judas. 12:7. leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. He knew that it was close. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. As Jesus rode that donkey among that crowd that day, he knew in just a few days, my life is over. But he didn't hold back. He kept going. Now, maybe the most famous passage of scripture ever is John 3, 16. 
And I want you to pay attention to what it says. It says, for God so loved the world that he, what's the word? He gave. What did he give? He gave his one and only son so that whoever would believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life through faith in Jesus. God knew if you put your faith in my son, I will offer up my son so that your sins can be forgiven and our relationship can be right. All you gotta do is believe in him. In Hebrews chapter 12, I came across this passage. Hebrews 12, two says this, we should fix our eyes on Jesus. Some say that he's the author and the perfecter of our faith. He's the pioneer, the perfecter of our faith because for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What joy, what joy did Jesus have as he saw the cross approaching? The joy that Jesus looked forward to was knowing, Father, I can die in their place. And if they trust in me, they will be restored to you. For the joy set before him, Jesus gave his life. And so when we talk about living generous lives, when we talk about giving, think about what God has given to us. Think about what Jesus has given to us. Surely, as his followers, we can learn to practice these things so that people on the outside say, why are y'all so generous? Oh, it's because God gave to us first. It's because he made a way to be made right with him. And so in the weeks to come, I just want to challenge you to think, where are you on your journey of generosity and how can you grow? How does God want to see you grow? If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus before you give anything, I want to invite you to receive his gift of your life for your sins and then get on this journey of generosity with him. If you need prayer after service or you're ready to begin a relationship with Jesus, I'm going to be hanging out over here after service. But as I pray... I want you to pray and say, Father, where do you want me to go? What are you asking me to do? And then just respond in obedience and gratitude. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. I'm thankful to be with our church family. I'm thankful, Father, for the way that I see people in our church love you and follow you and express love and kindness for you. I'm thankful to hear people lift up our prayers for this family in need. But we're also thankful that you have modeled generosity for us. You have modeled love for us in a way that honestly we can't understand. All you ask is that we put our faith and trust in you. All you ask is that as we follow Jesus, we learn to follow his example of giving our lives for your kingdom. And so would you help us to become a church where generosity is normalized in radical ways? Would you help us to give in such a way, not just to Genesis, but everywhere we go, that people would say, you guys are different. Tell me about that. Would you open up the doors to your kingdom through our collective generosity and let it be for your glory, Jesus. Let our generosity to you respond in the people that we know and love and care for, surrendering their lives to you and living generous lives for you so that the pattern continues on. Holy Spirit, in the weeks to come, would you challenge us maybe to give for the first time, to move past being comfortable in our giving and to move towards a place of surrender where we realize it's all yours anyway. Jesus, we love you. And we lift these prayers to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.